ourselves. We pray against distractions. We pray that our hearts would be ready to receive your word. God, we pray that you would uh, rough up the rough ground, that we would receive your word, that you would plant it deep into our hearts and, and produce a, a 30 to 60 to 100 yield, Father, from what is sown. And God, we pray that you would make us a people of, that has pure religion, God, that have a religion that is pure and undefiled before you. Father, I pray that all that is said and done in this sermon, Father, would convict us, would challenge us. But, oh God, I pray that we'd be comforted yet again by the truth of the gospel. So, Father, I pray that you would give us um, revelation this morning. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, So a few weeks ago, my wife went to a a music conference, and one of the pastors who was being interviewed was talking about his experience of why he loves music. And he said, well, one of the reasons why I love music is that I had a mother that loved uh, music, and she always was singing, and she was leading choirs at, at church. And I had a father that could not sing at all, uh, but he sang boisterously and proudly. Um, and my wife immediately started chuckling, reminding, uh, thinking of our own children, that is the makeup of their parents, a, a mother who loves to sing and can, and a father who desperately needs help. Uh, it's a well-known fact to our church family that I cannot sing. It's especially well-known to People who lead worship, pray for Adam as I sing in his ear every Sunday. Um, Although it's been documented on numerous occasions in numerous ways that I can't sing, there are still days when I believe I have a good voice. A couple years ago, I was driving in my car and I was listening to some hymns and I was singing and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I sound pretty good right now. (laughs) So... Uh, what I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm going to prove to my wife that I actually can sing. So I don't recommend this, but I took out my phone. I started recording myself singing. Singing, and I sang for about a minute and stopped it. Um, and then I listened to my, my voice, and I never showed my wife that recording. <laughs> Just a little bit of self-reflection. I quickly realized that I still could not sing. Isn't it amazing how quickly, how easily we are self-deceived? You know, I had a long evidence, long line of evidence of why I could not sing, but yet those days when I still believe I had a good voice. And now when that thought kind of springs up, I say, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> uh, do not be self-deceived, Dave. You can't sing. Let it go. Uh, but I wonder how many of you this morning are self-deceived but maybe self-deceived about something that's far more important. I wonder how many of you have a little bit of self-reflection in your life, where you can see your life the way God sees it. The question that I would ask you today is, are you religious? Are you religious? Now, we know the word religious and religion have kind of a bad connotation in our day, most Christians, when they hear the word religion, religious, would simply say, I, I'm not religious, I have a relationship with God. Many nominal Christians may even say, well, yeah, of course I'm religious. I, I go to church several times a year and possibly give money on occasion. Some would say, yes, I'm religious, I'm, I'm Catholic, or I'm, I'm Presbyterian, defining themselves based on their denomination. And yet others may, may say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, whatever that means. The word religious has different connotations today. But in the the biblical world, when they said religious, the way James uses it in our text this morning, 
Now, he's referring to, are you a Christian? Those who say they are a Christian, those who are uh, bound to God. That's the, the, the idea of the, the, the root word, is this being bound to God. I've made an oath or a vow to the Lord. I'm, that means that you're saved from your sins, that you belong wholly and fully to God. There were many in Jesus' day, as there was in James' day, who believed that they were right with God, that they were religious in, in that sense, that they belonged to God and yet were deceived. Many of you know the story of, uh, of Luke. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus uh, talking to a lawyer, and this lawyer comes up to him and says, A teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? Have you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. This great interaction between someone who claims to be religious, saying, listen, he had the right answers, to love God with everything and to love your neighbor as yourself. But the next line, next verse is key. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? When looking at those two commandments, to love the Lord, to love our neighbor, well, what it should do, it should expose how we fall short of that, how we don't love the Lord our God with all our soul, mind, health, strength, and heart, and how we don't love our neighbor as we, as we ought. But this man, hearing those two things, heard those commands and started justifying himself. Listen, this is how I love the Lord. This is how I love my neighbors. And I believe that is the heart of many of us when we approach this text in James. We've heard it before. Depending on what side of the, the aisle you may sit, you may use this verse to encourage social justice or use it to prepare a long list of caveats of why we shouldn't fully engage in social justice. My prayer when we approach this text is that you would not try to justify yourself this morning. That you would not hear the word of God and try to show how you are trying to fulfill these commands. But that you would have honest self-reflection. Jesus told a parable to the man who wanted to justify himself of a, of a man who was fell into robbers. And he says there was a priest and a Levite, religious men who, who saw them and, and walked on by and did nothing. But then there was a Samaritan who saw him in his distress and his affliction and cared for him and took him to an inn and, and paid his, his bill. And at the end of the parable, the verse says this, which of these three, Jesus asking to the lawyer, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. So the lawyer was able to say the one who was a good neighbor, the one who was acting as a religious person should, was the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The lawyer's question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. James's question, are you truly religious or do you have a pure religion is the same question. Is, are you saved? That when you close your eyes in death, will you meet God in glory and, and joy? Or will you be sent away with those awful words, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness? This morning, I think we can see three things of 
of the pure religion that God requires of us. The first, if you want to follow along in your bulletin, is pure religious speech. Pure religious speech. Now remember, I'm using that word religious in the biblical context, not in the context maybe of present day. So in James chapter 1, verse 26, it says, if anyone thinks he is religious, there's a personal reflection here. Someone is, is able to claim, yes, I am a religious person. Yes, I am a, a Christian. Yes, I follow God. Yes, I belong to him. Now the question is, is when you say that, are you defining that in biblical terms? Or are you defining that in your, own, in your own head? There were people in the church that James was writing to. Now remember, James would have known these people. Uh, it says that this was to the uh, 12 tribes of the dispersion, clearly written to the church. Uh, these are folks who probably lived in Jerusalem for a time and then were scattered. So James probably uh, knew these folks. But although they claim to have a relationship with Jesus, they claim to be a Christian, their lives did not match up. There was something that was a, a disconnect. They were living in hypocrisy. So James here gives us three checks to, to test or reveal if these people truly are Christians. He starts out with the negative. It says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Now remember from our context last week, this, uh, this, this idea of being quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to be angry. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James is probably referring to the same thing. He's referring to those of you who, who lash out uh, verbally with anger at others. That is someone who does not bridle his tongue, does not have self-control, but he lashes out and he, he takes out his anger on, on others. He's probably referring to the same thing here. Now, just like we can do in, in other parts of the Scriptures, we understand the, the original context, probably anger, but we can make an extension. Other ways that we don't bridle our, our tongue, gossip or slander. You know, this week, I'm, I'm, I was so encouraged. Um, many of you came up to me after last week's sermon and said, uh, Pastor, thank you for preaching that word. Uh, I was convicted. Uh, I was convicted of my sin for how I have been angry. And I have, I have not been slow to speak, but I have been s- quick to be angry. And I am so thankful for those words of encouragement. See, what, what the Word of God is designed to do, it's, it's designed to go out and to expose you. As you look into the law of liberty, which we do every single week, we're, we're, we're staring and the Scripture, what it's doing, it's trying to expose your sin. And the reason why those comments were so encouraging, not that these uh, brothers and sisters were struggling with anger, but that they, they were exposed of that anger and, and, and repented. They turned from their sin and they were turning back to Christ. Beloved, we all struggle with sin. The key is what happens when we are confronted or exposed in that sin. Do we hide it? Diminish it? Ignore it? Downplay it? Or accept it? The one who do the the first four is self-deceived. And the Bible says that person's religion is worthless. The one who accepts his sin, confesses it, and repents, understands he needs a Savior. Are you religious? Will you inherit eternal life? Do you bridle your tongue? That's a mark to show whether or not you have Christ. Are you angry towards others constantly? Are you constantly hypercritical or judgmental of others? 
Do you gossip or do you slander? Do you use crude jokes? Now we know that we cannot inherit eternal life from our works. We actually recognize because of our lack of works, our our need for salvation, and therefore a Savior. Beloved, Christians should not try to justify themselves. So if you're here today and you are a non-Christian, you're kind of wondering about the Christian faith, uh, you may have met Christians who have acted arrogant or self-righteous, judgmental. Can I say I'm sorry? That does not represent Christianity. Christians know that we can't justify ourselves. We are sinners. We know that we've rebelled against God. We have sin, and, and we know that because of our sin, we deserve death in a literal hell with unquenchable fire. But we also know that God, who is rich in mercy and love, gave his Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place on the cross, taking God's wrath, paying for our sin. Jesus did not have to justify himself. He was perfect. He did nothing wrong. And yet, as a perfect man, he died for sinners. He was dead and buried. But God raised him up, raised him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand of God, where he is now ready to judge the living and the dead. We cannot justify ourselves. But Romans 3, 23-26, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. By His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Now hear this verse. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We cannot justify ourselves. We are justified through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, don't try to justify yourself. But you can be justified today. All you have to do is turn to Christ. Turn away from your sins. That's what the word pent is. Change your mind about who Jesus Christ is and all of its implications and follow Christ. Our works do not save us. But if we think that because we are saved, we are free to sin. We are free to fly off the handle. We are free to gossip and free to slander. Friends, you are self-deceived. And your religion or faith is worthless. Do you have a faith that saves? A faith that saves or saving faith will, will work to bridle your tongue. Now there's going to be, some of you may be already discouraged because was he in my house this week? <laughs> no, it wasn't, okay? Um, but sometimes we fly off the handle. We lose it. The question is, is when you, when you lose control of your tongue, do you work hard to bridle it? Do you work hard to constrain it? Or do you say, it's not that big a deal? The one who works hard to constrain it or bridle it and, and work to become like Christ has most likely saving faith because they know that they're going to be judged by every idle word that comes out of their mouth. How we speak is an indicator or a mark of our faith. So pure religious speech is a mark that you have been born again. 
that you are a believer in Christ and that you will inherit eternal life. The second mark is pure religious sacrifice. Pure religious sacrifice. It's not only about how we speak, but how we sacrifice. James shifts from a negative to to a positive. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. So not the hypocrite, right? Not the one who's, who's, who says he's a Christian and, and, and not living like it with his tongue. He says, no, the one, this religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pure religion, a pure Christianity, is a, is a life that is not focused on self, but on others. Pure religion shows itself in costly compassion, in costly compassion. So what James does, he gives you two groups. I don't think he means to be exhaustive here. He's giving you a a picture of of how you can tell if you are truly religious or or born again. He he says these two groups that are often overlooked at orphans and widows. Now, why does he use these two groups? Well, I think it's it's, it's probably obvious that when you serve orphans and widows, you're not going to get a lot in return. You know, caring for orphan requires pouring oneself out with any, without any immediate return. Uh, caring for a two-year-old uh, is, is not what you do if you want to get ahead in life, right? If you want to have happiness and peace, dealing with screaming toddlers is not the way to, to do it. And yet we know that there's a, there's a sacrifice when we do that. In the end, along the way, we're going to be experiencing a reward. But, you know, an orphan is not going to write you a check when you feed them. You know, they're not going to return the favor and uh, a three-year-old is not going to cut the grass. Um, they can't provide anything in return. So James is like, well, how do you care for these who are, are the least among us? And not only orphans, but what about widows? You know, in the first century, it was the job of the family to care for the widow. Uh, so if there wasn't any social programs like we have today where they could go to a nursing home or they have Social Security. No, it was the job of the families. And, and sometimes the families did not care for widows. Widows or widowers. Now, they mostly say widows here because they weren't expecting men to live uh, long. Uh, so it was the job of the church often to pick up the responsibility. A widow in the first century could not return with favor. or She didn't have resources. She didn't have, all she had was need. She had need. And the question is, will you meet that need? Caring for a widow meant providing for all their needs, food and shelter, and expecting nothing in return. So James asked a simple question. Are you religious? How do you care for orphans? How do you care for widows? Now, remember the context, and it's not enough to, to have the right desire. I think oftentimes we hear this and we say, of course, if I'm put in a situation to care for an orphan or a widow, I would respond. James does not say, what is your heart in caring for a widow or an orphan? He says, do you do it? Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, meeting an orphan and widow in their affliction. Like I said, I don't think that he's exhaustive here in the first two. It gives a very specific example, orphans and widows. I think he broadens it in the third one, which we can kind of put a lot of things under that. But it's how we show mercy and compassion. And it's a costly compassion. The compassion that God has given us is a costly compassion. He gave himself his life. Now, when, I, when, I, when I'm thinking about this text, what I don't want to see happen is for you to feel guilt from this sermon. Oftentimes you, you, you look at a text like this and you feel guilty for all that you're not doing. That is not my design for this sermon, okay? My, my goal is not to, to guilt you, 
but to inspire you to realize what this kind of work can do for the kingdom of God. Jesus says, when people see our good works, they will praise our Father who is in heaven. Peter says that when we labor in, in living our lives for others, that people will glorify God on the day of visitation. And we live in a very unique time that if we take care of mercy-type ministries, caring for orphans and widows, the world will take notice. Because the world does not want to hear our words until they see our lives. That's the world we live in the 21st century. That doesn't mean we don't share our words, because we do, because there's power in the Word of God. We share it, and God may bring new life. We want to soften their hearts by living a life before them that they would hear our words. So let us not justify ourselves, but let's just do a little self-reflection. When we think about orphans, I think the first question I would ask is, do you know any fatherless among you? Do you know anyone in your home? Anyone in your, in your, your employment? Have you heard of stories of the fatherless? Have you or are you willing to open up your home to the fatherless, to orphans. Now, the church is always meant to be a family. There's a lot of pictures for the church, the flock, the temple, the the building, all these corporate images, but the one that's often pronounced in the epistles written to the church is the family. It's the new new, new fathers and new new spiritual mothers and, and brothers and sisters. It's our job to care for one another. And are we doing so? Are we looking around us and seeing who can we take in and care for? I maybe even encourage you kids who, who go to school and who are around other, other kids, hear their story and ask how can you help meet their, their needs. One of the reasons why we're, we're serving the Children's Attention Home this month as a mission action is because there's kids in our town who don't have fathers and mothers caring for their needs. And the question is, where's the church? Well, can, we, can we meet those needs? There's opportunities in our own areas. I just mentioned one, the the children's attention home. Uh, Foster care is a wonderful way uh, to care for orphans. But I tell you what, if you go into caring for foster care, you will see what costly compassion is about. Uh, Those who open their their home to those who don't have uh, fathers and mothers to care for them or or whose rights have been taken. It's a labor. You know, I have a a good friend um, who... Uh, fostered a, a child, and the stories that he says was were, are, are excruciating. But what he what he has to deal with with his his foster child, and he he gladly does it. Doesn't mean it's not hard. Doesn't mean he doesn't get weary at times. But he sees the joy of following and you know, being obedient to this commandment. You know, I ran Ellen and I ran a group home for teen moms for five years, and there were many days where it was hard. It was weary, right? But what do you do? You can't keep, keep on pouring yourself out to others. There are kids right now who need homes. Will one of us step up and say, I'll, I'll do it? Everyone can't because of situations. I get that. But could we? Could some of you enter into that foster care world? There's also adoption. Adoption is, is a wonderful ministry where we can be pro-life by bringing people into, into our homes. You could do that through the state. You could do it overseas. You could do it in, in numerous ways. And when, when, when maybe a family wants to adopt, maybe has the desire, a lot of families have that desire, but they don't have the resources. And that's probably one of the reasons why families don't adopt is they don't feel like they have the resources. But wouldn't it be amazing if, if you heard of someone who, who had uh, the desire to adopt 
and you said, let me help meet that need. Let me, let, me, let me dig into my own checkbook and my own savings and give that to you so that you can adopt this child. This is a, this is a corporate effort. It's, he's not writing to individual, right? He's not writing to a single individual. Dave, care for widows and orphans. He's saying, church, church body, come together and, and do this. There are plenty of organizations in our town that need help. Many of you already are serving our organizations around town, you know, that care specifically for uh, the fatherless. I pray that you would do so more and more. You know, if you're looking for opportunities to, to fill your time, there, there are a lot better ways to fill your time than Netflix. I'm being, I'm being, I'm being 100% serious. But that's what we are trained to do. We are trained when we have free time to take it ourselves and not to give it away. And, and I think James is saying here is he's saying, listen, if you want to have pure religion, care for somebody else. Care for those who are not like yourselves. And I would just say this, opportunities that we have here in our own areas is fight for life. There are children who need life. Abortion is the greatest evil in our day. The legalization, the legalization of murder of children. Friends, we need to give ourselves in costly compassion to fight that evil. Our prayers, our resources, our time. Organizations like Cities for Life in Charlotte, Palmetto Pregnancy Center here. And we, we, we want to live costly, right? We want to sacrifice our lives for others with our compassion to show the world that Jesus Christ is real. And I'm, I'm not saying that this is a... If you don't do this, you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is this, is that there are people outside these walls who don't know Christ. And Jesus has given us hearts of mercy because he is the God of mercy. He wants to us extend that mercy to those who need it so that the world will know that Christ is true. We just need to reassess our priorities. Are we bowing to the God of comfort or sport or recreation? Or are we bowing to the Father of the fatherless, the God of all mercy? But he doesn't just mention orphans here or the fatherless. He also mentions uh, widows. Now, when I say widows, I'm saying widows and widowers, those who have lost a, a spouse in our current context. I mean, do you know widows? We have plenty of widows and widowers in our church. And not that you just know who they are, that they've lost a spouse, but do you know what they're going through? Do you, do you know their pain? Do you know their hurt? Do you know their, their needs? Do you know their joys and their trials? You know, I, I even heard today that some of our, our, our seniors feel neglected and they feel um, not cared for. Now, I knew that need was there. I, I, I felt it personally and, and for the last three or four months. I've talked to that about our leadership, our elders, and, and our deacons. But it's the job of the body, right, to care for each other. Are we going to care for those who are not like us? You know, there's opportunities right here in our own congregation. You know, you could find out someone's address and go visit them, spend an hour with them on, on a lunch break, or maybe go after work and, and bring a meal and just get to know someone and, and encourage their, their heart. I, I think that so much of our Christian life fails is because we, we, do, we don't do one of two things. We don't consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, Hebrews 10.25. We don't think about how we can bless others. 
We don't think how we could be a service to others. We just don't think about it, right? I think it's probably the, the, the number one failing of the church is we don't consider. You know what we do consider? Myself. How I'm doing, how my life is going, uh, how my resources, we don't consider the needs of others. Two, we don't act on those considerations. Sometimes we, we get past the, the, the consider part. We jump into the, we're, we're going to consider, but then we don't actually go and do. Now, if you have that desire and you don't know how to, let us help you, right? Uh, there are, are men and women in our church that will take you to serve our, the widow and widowers of our congregation. Let us step outside of our own comfort zone. Now, many of you who are discipling people, you're trying to grow them in Christian uh, discipleship, Christian maturity. One of the best ways to do that is, is go and serve others. Uh, you don't have to have an organized effort. All you need to do is someone's address and a visit and tell them about what God's doing in your life. Uh, missionally, there's plenty of opportunities you could do that in our, in our town. Uh, nursing homes, adult daycare centers, you know, ministries that are caring for our seniors. Remember, this, the, the goal is that we would show the world a pure religion. And let's just be honest. Our, our, the spiritual climate in America is toxic. The, the, the political climate in America is toxic. Things are just, are just toxic so much. Even in the church, things can be toxic. The question is, is, are we going to show that we are religious, that we have faith, that we have a faith that saves, that we have been born again, that we have belonged to God, that we have inherited eternal life in how we live? So that those who are lost, who are far from God, can come into the kingdom. And in study, I come across Isaiah chapter 1 uh, this week. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 1. You want to hold James there. Isaiah chapter 1. You know, often when we think about uh, the, the worst cities in the Old Testament, what we often think about is Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was kind of known for their sexual morality. That's really what the church often highlights, the sexual morality of Sodom and Gomorrah. But I want you to see how when Isaiah was rebuking Judah and for how the leaders were acting, he was calling them Sodom and Gomorrah because of how they were living. And it was they were calling them Sodom and Gomorrah, a, a city that God destroyed. He called them those who took care for others. Listen to this text. Isaiah chapter 1, beginning verse 10. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. This is the Lord speaking. You, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough burnt offerings of rams, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, out of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. What God is saying here is all your religious practices are tiresome to me. They're tiresome. I'm sick of your sacrifices. I'm sick of your acts of worship because your hearts are far from, far, are far from me. You can say the same thing today. You know, I'm sick of your church attendance. I'm sick of your church giving. 
I'm sick of your, your religious actions. They have grown wearisome to me because your hearts are far from me. Listen, God's main thing in his life is your heart. He wants your heart to be alive with him. He wants you to love him with, with all that you have. And so often we, 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 we feign love by religious action. And God says, I'm tired of it. To the, to the rulers of Judah. This is what he says in verse 16. He says, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from before your eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. See what he does there? He's saying, stop just giving me religious action. Repent. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from false love or a a minimalistic devotion. No, give me everything. Seek me. Seek justice. It says, bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. Show yourself to be one of pure religion. And then he tells us why. Why do we give ourselves in in, in compassion and sacrifice for others? Look at verse 18. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Beloved, the reason why we give ourselves in, in costly compassion is because our sins were like scarlet. But now they're as white as snow through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Isaiah was calling the leaders of Judah to do is what James is calling us to do here. To care for the weak and the needy. In response to what God has done for us, we, 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 we consider all that our, our sins have been all the the plethora of sins that we have wronged God with. And we say, yes, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. And because his mercy was more to me who didn't deserve it, I want that mercy to be shown to others who don't deserve it for the glory of his name. If God has given us so much, shall we not give ourselves in costly compassion to the weak, to the needy, to the orphan, to the widow. Lastly, pure religious separation. Pure religious separation. Now our world does not value orphans and widows. But our God is the father of the fatherless and the God of all mercy. When we turn here, James is not only concerned about your care for orphans and widows. No, he, he, there's an end there. And I want to hear this, 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 this passage talked about or preached. The beginning part of your anger in your tongue is never mentioned. And the end part about keeping yourself from this world is not really mentioned. Look what the, how the text ends. It says, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The world and its values are always subtly encroaching 
on the church. Because you live in the world every single day. And the world is subtly encroaching on you. And when we gather as the people of Park Baptist Church, the world is right here with us. But beloved, we do not belong to this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to God. We have been bought with a price. We're called to live differently. And what we're going to experience right now is one of the ways God has said, separate yourself from the world. It's the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's table, we, we, we are making a, a, an allegiance to God. We are reminding everybody, our, our hearts and each other, that we do not belong to this world. We do not belong to the ideology of this world, the, the values of this world. We belong to God. His way, always. When we come to the table, we say, no, we are not out there. We are in here. We have been brought, bought by the blood of Christ. When we come to this table, we are saying that we want pure religion. Yes, we may have failed this past week, but we come with ready hearts of repentance to take the Lord's table, understanding that the only way that we can be justified is not by ourselves, but by the just and the justifier who died and rose for us. We come together considering that our sins, although they were like scarlet, are now as white as snow. We come together as a body to recommit our lives together in faith. It's a time of self-reflection. It's a reminder that we are in desperate need of God. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to ask the elders of our church to come and read our church covenant um, as a reminder of our commitment to each other and to God when we come to this table. Father, we pray that you would help us be unstained from the world. God, there's many ways we can talk about what that means, but God, I pray that profoundly it means that we do not belong to this world, but we belong to you. So we pray during this time when we take the table together that you would remind us that we are yours, wholly and completely. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, elders, uh, please uh, come up. I'm going to ask you to do your uh, reading. The reason why we want them to, to read the, uh, the church covenant, just come on up, guys. Um,